Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio spoke with author Eve Ewing before a live studio audience, chatted with a Bulls legend about social activism, and heard from a powerhouse new band from L.A. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for February 30, 2018. I-94, we're in a conversation with author Eve Ewing in front of a live studio audience at Pilsen Community Books. Ewing discussed her new book, Electric Arches, talked about Chicago public school closings, and her love for Black Panther. I-94 airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Welcome back to this edition of I-94 Pilsen Community Books. Our special guest tonight is Eve Ewing. Please, once again, give her a warm welcome. Now, Eve, you were talking just before the break uh, about Ron Artest, but also about the Chicago public school systems. You were a teacher there. You're a passionate advocate for education. Want to? Uh, I don't think I'm dropping any spoilers here, but you do have a new book coming out yeah, in October, no right? No spoilers. Uh, it's uh, Go- uh, Ghost in the Schoolyard. Am I correct? From University of Chicago it. Press. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's about? Because that's going to kind of lead into my next question, because I know what the book's about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so the book is called, as you said, it's called Ghosts in the Schoolyard, and the subtitle is um, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. Um, and it is about that. Um, so it the book is about the 2013 um, Chicago public school closures, uh, which are now back in the news, both because they're the one of the deals of the closings was that um, there would be a five-year moratorium on school closures, which is now being lifted. Five years flew right by. Um, and also because there's a c- contention over school closings in Inglewood, um, as well as National Teachers Academy, which is on Cermak and Wabash, fighting passionately to keep their school open. Um, and so the book is really about school closings, but it's also uh, using that event and that series of events to really talk about the history of racism and segregation in the city. And part of what I'm trying to do is explore um, how segregation in that, that part of the city's history really shapes so much about our present day life in ways that often go unacknowledged or often go acknowledged by people in communities and not by people in power. Um, and it also explores the emotional aftermath of school closings um, and the impact that it has on the community and on people that are affected by it. Um, and so what I'm hoping is that the book will be a tool for conversation um, for people to have a little bit more of an informed discussion about what it means to close a school and what's really on the table when you make that decision. Now, why are, for people that don't know, three schools in Englewood are being targeted for a shutdown. And of course, you already mentioned uh, NTA. Why are these schools being shut down? What is CPS's rationale for this? And then, if you don't mind, what's the actual reason that these schools are being shut down? Yeah, so um, so the argument that has been used is this idea of underutilization. Um, NTA is a slightly different convers- slightly different situation, but talking about Englewood and the 2013 school closings, the argument is underutilization, meaning that we have really big buildings and not a lot of kids in those buildings, right? Um, and the way it's framed by CPS is often based on an idea of choice. Like people, they there's something in education where there's this idea of talking about education like a marketplace, right? Like I go to the cereal aisle and I make my choice of what cereal that I want based on how much sugar is in it and like if I'm into marshmallows and whatever, right? And my, my personal preferences. And there's a way of a kind of neoliberal way of talking about schools in that way. Like parents are shopping for schools. And so when they say the schools are underutilized, it's sort of under this idea that like 
people just aren't choosing to go to these schools. And what that ignores is uh, a great deal of context, including but not limiting to uh, the ways in which black families are leaving and being pushed out of the city of Chicago. Um, the destruction of public housing uh, plays a huge role in what happened in Chicago in 2013 with school closures, um, as well as the fact that uh, hundreds, uh, not hundreds, but lots and lots of new charter schools and other uh, schools have been built um, around these communities in different ways. And so, um, and the other thing that's always interesting to me when you say like, what is it really about? Uh, it's interesting to me how we have different metrics for different kids. So in 2013, people were saying, well, we have to close these buildings because they're empty. Like there's not a lot of kids in the school. And I say, you know, at the lab school, if you have seven kids in a class, that's like a great, awesome thing, right? People pay thousands, tens of thousands of dollars a year, right? The pres everybody from the president to the secretary of education to the mayor pays tens of thousands of dollars a year to uh, have the privilege of their kid being in a small class. Um, but when you're talking about CPS, all of a sudden the conversation became about this phrase that I love writing about called the enrollment efficiency range, which is basically how many kids you can pack into a building. And so these schools were closed based on this formula of like okay we have this many classrooms there are this many kids can fit into a classroom ipso facto uh the school needs to close um and there are also lots of other messed up things like cps um often would miscount classrooms so that rooms that were being used for certain things or that had been allocated to charter schools or being counted against schools um as well as the fact that two schools that are near each other would be pitted against each other. So like if both of them were almost identical, the one that had test scores like two or three or four points above uh, would be would remain open and the other one would close, which like is statistically doesn't make any sense and also would really be pitting people in the community against each other instead of, uh, you know, and making them feel like, OK, I have to fight for the survival of my school by disparaging this other school instead of realizing actually we're serving pretty much identical populations and all of us are in a really bad place um and i won't go too deep into the nta situation but one thing i want to say about that is uh so national teachers academy right now is slated to be closed and turned into a high school and i went to a community meeting about it recently and something that made me really sad was that people from nta were standing up saying you know please keep our school open and then you also had people from chinatown that were like well we also really need a school and we've been struggling for a school for a really long time and it became the situation where uh, people are feeling like we have to fight against each other uh, when in fact every kid in Chicago should have a good school and every kid in Chicago should have a good school in their neighborhood so that they don't have to do what I did which was travel an hour or 90 minutes on the CTA to get to school in the morning to get to high school right uh, we shouldn't all be fighting like eighth, I used to teach eighth grade and the worst thing was seeing eighth graders feel like their life or death was on the line if they didn't get into one of like eight schools in a system of 150 high schools, right? This is ridiculous. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and it sort of feels like having a parent come in and be like, all right, I only have one cookie and I have five kids and everybody has to fight over it, right? It's like, just buy more cookies. It's not that, you know? It's not that. Or you have a whole box of cookies in the kitchen and like you just are bogus and don't want to share them, you know? Uh, yeah, so it's very, it's an interesting and depressing topic and it, it never ceases to amaze me the level of like bizarre dystopian rhetoric and like weird Orwellian stuff gets said um, as these decisions are being made. Like enrollment efficiency range is not, that's like not a thing that any educator would ever be like, you know what's important? The, the enrollment <laughs> efficient like this is not a thing you know well they've, there's always been a war on education my mother was a teacher in detroit and you know ever you know since t 
teachers are oh, these overpaid enemy of the, <laughs> right. of the of the working man and things like that. You know, we all know it's it's uh, crap. Yeah. yeah, and Detroit has. I mean, another thing about the school is that as a, about the book is that as I've been writing this book, people in Detroit are like, we need this book, and people in Philly are like, arts. We lost twenty three schools, right? And people in Baltimore, and people in New Orleans, and people in D.C. and people in New York. Um, and so, part of what I'm also hoping is that uh, this can be like a, a bigger conversation about what our values are and how we're making decisions. And the same kind of like, you know, I'm a Chicagoan, so I'm. I'm prone to like conspiracy theories because <laughs> because there are consp- because there's scams like because also they're real like the most crazy conspiracy theory you could ever come up with is not worse than what Rod Blagojevich like actually was doing you know like, <laughs> like or Barbara Bird Bennett or any of these people um, but there are like Paul Vallis is like a school carpetbagger like he was in Chicago and he instituted a lot of the things that have like as the superintendent a CEO. CEO, in case you needed to be more depressed about the state of our schools that we call our superintendent, the CEO. Um, he was the CEO here, and then he went to New Orleans after Katrina and transformed it into an entirely charter district. And then he went to Philadelphia. And now, I mean, it's like there are there are actually a limited number of character actors. Barbara Bird Bennett was in Detroit before she came here. And when the headlines started hitting about her, people in Detroit were like, you hired who? Right? <laughs> what? <laughs> scammy lady? Scammy McScamalot? She got a job, right? Like um, She ran off with like $150,000. Yeah, yeah, she, and I always have to say it because it's one of the great lines in Chicago political corruption history. She said, I have casinos to visit and tuition to pay, right? In an email. Don't put that in an email. <laughs> right? You will be caught. Um, same thing, the guy who runs the Chicago Housing Authority, which right now is sitting on uh, a three to five year waiting list in a city where lots of people are homeless, a surplus of vacant units that are boarded up that they just choose not to use, and a surplus of money and have paid all their pensions off for the next 20 years, which is great, but like how and where, and has no oversight. Like the city council doesn't have the ability to actually audit their books, so there's no financial oversight. The guy who runs the the CHA, who's also unilaterally appointed by the mayor, he was from Toronto. So when I started writing about uh, that guy, the people from Toronto were like, what? You got Scammy McScamalot? Someone gave him a job? Like somehow, you know, it's like if you're a, a fiend and a thief in other cities, come to Chicago. And it wasn't he hired by Rob Ford, the crack smoking yes, mayor of yes, Toronto? He, yeah, he that's, was. That's always who I look for as a guy hired yes, by a former Rob, crack addict who died. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so he, uh, yeah, he's not, not a good egg. <laughs> Mario Smith spoke with legendary Bulls star Craig Hodges. The master of the long-range three-point jump shot talked about his new role in social activism and what black athletes in America must do in the age of Trump. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Had a successful basketball career. Used to drop bombs on the Chicago Bulls when he was a Milwaukee Buck. Used to make me angry. Then he wasn't a Milwaukee Buck anymore. He became a Chicago Bull. He used to drop bombs on the Knicks, which made me very happy. I am uh, very humbled and honored to introduce to everyone, uh, uh, Not forget basketball, a great cat. Craig Hodges joins the show. Hey, brother, how are you? Well, I appreciate you, man, and peace and blessings to you and all your audience, man. Thank you. Before we talk about the the activism stuff, first of all, you're someone I have wanted to talk to for a long, long time. <laughs> right on. 
man. No joke. When you played basketball, you are really the forebearer of what is now looked at as a specialty position, the three-point shooter. You you did a lot of stuff with the basketball off or away from the ball, actually, which got you in the positions to shoot this three. I, when did right. you when did you become so proficient at being able to knock that shot down? Well, you know, once again, thank God for getting the opportunity to speak on airways, man. And I was blessed to have great uh, great tutelage coming up, man. My uncles taught me how to, you know, they taught me how to play sports and basketball specifically. My uncle taught me how important it was to be able to catch the ball off of, uh, to catch and shoot the basketball without the dribble. And I worked my entire summer between my sophomore and junior year on, on perfecting that skill. And it was just something that got better and better as I got more in, experienced into the game. And, and then when you had the opportunity to play with the likes of MJ and Scotty, then that's a whole nother animal as far as making sure you're in open spaces to be seen. And once you get it, you got to let go of it because you might not get it again. <laughs> <laughs> right. When I was uh, in, in in my senior year of high school, you were playing for the Bucks in 1985. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the, the year before that in 1985, you used to make me so angry because you would come out there and be like, oh, here goes something. Here he goes, 15, about to do it again. There you go. And they're all... <laughs> We're never going to get out yeah. of this mess. It, it seemed like that Milwaukee Bucks team was a really fun team to play for with with uh, Don Nelson coaching and, and the guys you had on the squad. What was that experience like? And what was the experience like being in the city of Milwaukee and being able to work with folks in that city? Yeah, and that, you know, and I think that was one of, and for me, as far as basketball and the balance between basketball and social activism, that was one of my proving grounds as far as seeing how you can balance the two and seeing how effective you can be at it and learn from it and know that you can't uh, necessarily affect everything, but you can take a measure to do something. And I learned and I learned in Milwaukee what that something was as far as being committed to helping organizations that already exist do good things. And as far as the basketball was concerned, you know, we had, I felt like the teams that we had in Milwaukee were championship caliber teams, but we just couldn't get past uh, Boston, who had Larry Bird, the McHales, and Parrish and Danny Ainge and Dennis Johnson. So it was tough for us to get past them as well as the, I guess Nelly didn't ever want to win against his old team. <laughs> That's right. He did play for the Celtics back in the day. Absolutely. <laughs> um, w- w- let's swing into the activism thing for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not belittling it, everybody that's listening, by calling it the activism thing. Just relax, no, no, y'all. No, no, no. Not trying no, to do that. The the modern day NBA basketball player, the modern NFL football player, baseball player, hockey player that is of color, um, right. has a different set of circumstances. Some would say, but I would I would venture to say it is a mirror to what was happening the year that the Bulls won, and you went to the White House with the letter. You talked right. you talked a little bit about Michael Jordan not being able to to know or or rather not knowing what to say when it came mm-hmm. to actions of nationalism and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Can you expound right. on that a little bit? Well, I once again similar to the basketball like I told you my mentors in basketball my uncles the same thing as the movement was concerned. I had to, my mom was a civil rights secretary for the civil rights movement when I was growing up so I was always in between her and the president, and I saw organization and live leadership. So for me, I felt like I was blessed and didn't have a chance to go to Long Beach State and study black studies under some of the 
brightest minds on the planet as far as uh, black nationalism, black consciousness, and the like. So I, I felt primed to speak on concerns that I saw pertinent because that, that's my passion from a young age, and that, that wasn't everybody's upbringing. So I don't expect MJ, who I think met, uh, majored in geography at, at North Carolina, to be a social activist necessarily, right. but make sure that we don't get in the way of people who are trying to get things accomplished. And right now he's starting to come into his own as far as doing philanthropic work, and we just know that... The way this mission is, we need everybody, able-bodied person to do what we can to make sure that our next generation of young leaders can, um, you know, get to their full potential, man. What, what, do you think, had he said, or if he was in the frame of mind, and this isn't about him per se, but it's always been right, a question right. I want to ask, if he would have been in the frame of mind to make a bigger statement, what type of impact do you think that that would have had, and would we be having some of these issues that we still have now? You know, and that, that's the that's the that's the part of hindsight. That's that's uh, you know, it's great for conversation and and for sure. But I feel like where we are right now, there's a reason. You know, there's a reason why certain things had to happen to get us to a point where we've matured to to a level where we are now. That we're going to see organization and young people. You see it happening with the the children in, in Florida. I, I I was at Julian High School this morning, and I seen the organization especially with the young sisters over there. So it's a, it's a matter of, of time that, that, you know, our rise is coming. It's, it's natural. It's a natural process and natural cycle of, of life that everybody's going to have their heyday and everybody's going to have their, their time when you get in our position where we were the lowest of the low, and now we're out of our enslavement of mind and body. And now we're free to move, and that's what we have to make sure that we plan those movements and we plan our organizations in a way that we can get the full amount of energy out of them and, and make sure that our young people feel safe and secure and going ahead and don't feel like they got to pick up a weapon to make that happen. You famously gave uh, the president, President Reagan at the time, a letter. President Bush. I'm sorry, Bush. Why I ain't I that old, brother. Come on, man. <laughs> man, when I, Reagan was doing this thing, I was in high school too. I got it. Come on, brother. <laughs> okay, you know, Come you on. know, I, I'm it's not trying to, I'm not trying to age you or me. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. You gave the letter to the first Bush. It's been so many yeah. of these people. I get confused. You gave the letter to the first President Bush. Um, that was a big moment in 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 the history of sports teams visiting. Uh, the president. Um, right. I'm not as well versed as other folks as to what was in the letter. Could you let uh -huh. me in on that a little bit? And can you give me an idea of why did that backlash happen in that fashion? Was There could have been another way to to have dealt with it. I mean, I don't know how the team dealt with it per se, but the, the, the idea that it was difficult for you to get that footing back in the NBA again without being reminded constantly about the letter and the dashiki and all of that. Uh, yeah, and, and see, most people didn't really even know about the letter. They just knew about me wearing the dashiki to the White House and, and that the letter came after probably a couple years later that people actually realized that I actually wrote a letter to the president and gave it to him on behalf of our people or whatever. But, you know, the biggest thing is that in in doing so, it was one of those moments for me, knowing that I had written letters to you know our Congress people growing up in the projects in Chicago Heights. So this was a natural progression of things, in as far as where I was in my life, and and to be able 
to get a chance to go to the White House and speak to the president and see him personally and to be able to deliver a message on behalf of those who ain't going to get to come. And that's basically what it was, what it was concerned. It wasn't just about black people. It was about Native American. It was about poor white people. It was about those who are disenfranchised from feeling a part of the system in total. And that's not just about black people. Just, you know, so that was what the whole letter was about. And, and knowing that I have an opportunity and I can't just let it go by me going and feeling like, yeah, I'm a champion. I'm a champion. Now let me go jump in my Bugatti and beat up. Nah, come on. <laughs> it's more than that, man. So, and I hope that, you know, in doing so, it fostered, uh, this generation of social media that have the ability to do something about the things that they think about and you're seeing it happen and that's the beauty of the difference between where I was and Colin Kaepernick. We didn't have the instant, the instant, um, ability to get to the masses to let them know what is actually going on in, in a moment's time where, you know, it took years for my story to come out. We're talking with Craig Hodges. It's WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio News from the service entrance. You mentioned Colin Kaepernick and his his uh, is almost the same circumstance. Super Bowl a player, the highest point he could be in his career. Um, he decided that he had seen enough and he took a stand or a kneel, if you will. Um and right. subsequently could not find a job when clearly right. you right. had a list of absolute bums quarterbacking in the NFL right. who he right. was way better than and and, and, and all that. Um, and right. he took that and, and went in a whole different direction with it where now he's more activist than he's ever been football player. And he was a pretty decent football player. Have you, right. have you had a chance to like talk to him and counsel him on, on the moves he should yeah, or shouldn't we, make? Yeah, and that, that's the the thing that, you know, he, he compliments me and, and, and vice versa. And, and I had a chance to speak with his representatives, and we hopefully in the next couple months we can sit down and, you know, and strategize, man, because the stance that he took, and, like, I, I love his position in as far as he's been strategic. He got he actually got a high-powered attorney, Mark Garagos, to speak on his behalf in these instances where I didn't have that. I thought I could, you know, and, and once again, hindsight and different mechanisms that work now that weren't working at that time that are available to Colin and I and I applauded him on using those mechanisms available to him as well as the salary that he already commanded he's been able to utilize that to continue his movement without the NFL so you know and, and part and parcel of it of being that you know you have a you have a certain talent that God has given you now you don't have a chance to to play anymore and it's not because you get injured but it's because of the stance that you take and the stance that you take is not you know the the powers that be don't don't want you to to feel like you you're free to be able to speak your mind Radio Free welcomes scorching new act Starcrawler into Studio B for a chat ahead of their final date on their American tour Starcrawler also debuted their new single, I Love L.A., here on Lumpin' Radio. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time, from 4 to 6 p.m.
Welcome back to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. That was Star Crawler with Star Crawler. I Love LA, who is in town for their last night on their tour in from Los Angeles playing at the Empty Bottle. They'll be going on tonight at midnight, and we are now joined by the band Henry, Austin, Arrow, and Tim. Guys, welcome to the city. Hi. Hey, how are you? Guys, it's been a long tour for you, and uh, you know one of the things that uh, a lot of people are making a lot of noise about, aside from the fact that your your debut album was produced by Ryan Adams, you guys are pretty young. One of you is still in uh, high school. Uh, one of you is just out of high school. How's it been embarking on a pretty long rock and roll tour? Um, well, it's, it's been pretty fun. Like we've had a really good uh, support band with us um, here. Actually, locals from Chicago called Sundown Club. Um, yeah, it's been like a really fun tour. We've you know, played a lot of shows, had some good times in some cities, had some weird times in others, but we're happy to be here in Chicago. So weird, what were the weird times? We love hearing about that. Um, I'd say but Pontiac, Michigan, probably. What was in Gone? Oh, right. Just yeah. Indiana, say. Indiana was very interesting as well. Oh, yeah, or when, like, a dude tried to pull up my shirt in Ohio. Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> That does sound very strange. Some of some of the places in the Midwest are, are perhaps not the most friendly to uh, this. But you guys have been <laughs> yeah, making cool. you guys have been making waves overseas. I mean, your first album obviously is out on uh, Rough Trade. Um, the reception in Britain and and Europe seems to have been rapturous. You guys have how many dates did you guys do in England and France? Uh, well, this past tour, we I think okay. we did I think we did like maybe ten shows across, maybe like a three in the UK from like London to Cardiff. We played Cardiff, you know, uh, Norwich, uh, Bristol, places like that. And then we did like uh, a few days in Paris, few in the Netherlands, some in Germany. So it's been it's been pretty uh, hefty to take all that on in a single tour. Was it a conscious decision to end in Chicago? Uh, no, just, just the way it was planned. But uh, we're happy that it ended in Chicago because it's a great city. What uh, what are you taking away from the road uh, now now that you're uh, coming to an end here? What's the vibe out there in uh, in, in in America these days? Um, well, the, for the most part, it's been pretty like mellow. Like we haven't really had too many like intense moments on tour where like fights have broken out or anything like yeah. that. For the most part, everyone's actually been really nice to us. Yeah. Like we've dealt with like annoying, say like bouncers at shows and stuff like that, but. For the most part, even from the East Coast, when we started this tour in Boston, going to Philadelphia and New York and all the way through the Midwest, ending here in Chicago, everyone's been fairly nice to us. So yeah. We've actually had a very nice time doing this. It's just really cold. <laughs> yeah, you guys are, <laughs> yeah, you guys are L.A. kids. You're not used to uh, sub-zero weather. <laughs> You know, there's been a lot written about how you guys are, are playing a kind of a retro style of rock and roll, and, and rock and roll here in Chicago, unfortunately, hasn't been that fashionable. Have you guys been, have you guys found, like, and been embraced on the road for people that were kind of a little bit sick of hip-hop or a little bit sick of R&B? Our fans are mostly old punk dudes. Old, old punk dudes like the people interviewing you. <laughs> yeah. Guys guys in their 50s are interviewing, okay. All, so, the, good, all the good ones. Radio. 
The Trump Diaries. An outpouring of grief swamps Washington with demands for gun control. Mueller's indictments continue, as do Trump's heated denials. A meeting with Mexico collapses over that wall, and Trump's kids keep getting in trouble. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 399, February 22nd. In the wake of the latest mass school shootings, Trump declined to call for further gun control measures, instead endorsing the idea of arming teachers. Trump said adept teachers or former military officers should be armed to shorten school shootings. He added in a statement that he intends to be, quote, very strong on background checks without giving any specifics. And Trump attacked Attorney General Jeff Sessions again in a tweet, continuing his seething over the latest indictments handed down by Robert Mueller. Quote, if all of the Russian meddling took place during the Obama administration, right up to January 20th, why aren't they the subject of the investigation? Why didn't Obama do something about the meddling? Why aren't Dem crimes under investigation? Ask Jeff Sessions. And a lawyer connected with Paul Manafort and a prestigious New York law firm pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Alex van der Zwan admitted lying to investigators and deleting emails related to his work with Rick Gates, a former Trump campaign aide. Trump is also reportedly considering pulling ICE agents in California as punishment for failing to work with him on his program to curtail illegal immigration. Day 400, February 23rd. Robert Mueller filed additional criminal charges against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates today. A new 32-count indictment adds new tax and bank fraud charges, accusing the two of laundering millions of dollars. Gates is set to plead guilty in a sign he is cooperating with the Mueller investigation. And in a remarkably bitter and paranoid speech, Wayne LaPierre, CEO and vice president of the NRA, accused Democrats of exploiting tragedy for political gain in the wake of the Florida school shooting. LaPierre, speaking to tepid applause, also attacked the left for promoting, quote, a socialist agenda intended to strip firearms away from law-abiding citizens. He also called the FBI's director a rogue leader. Ahead of that speech, Florida Senator Marco Rubio and NRA representatives were repeatedly booed and heckled during an open town hall in Florida. Rubio said he was reconsidering support for an assault weapons ban, and he did not support Trump's plan to arm teachers. In related news, Trump tweeted in all caps that attacks would end if his strategy of arming highly trained gun adept teachers coaches would adopted. It would solve the problem instantly before police arrive. Trump added that gun-free school zones make it like going in for ice cream. Also, Donald Trump Jr. liked several conspiracy theories on Twitter about last week's school shooting. One included calling an outspoken survivor of the attack an agent of the deep state media. In a listening session scheduled with victims, Trump was excoriated by parents who demanded new gun control measures and reminded him the attacks were on his watch. A camera captured notes in Trump's hand that reminded him to say stock phrases such as, I hear you, and what would you most want me to know about your experience? Day 401, February 24th. Rick Gates today formally pled guilty to two counts of conspiracy and lying to the FBI. Gates admitted hiding and laundering millions of dollars with Paul Manafort. Jared Kushner has been told he is unable to get full security clearance and will not, at least until after the Mueller investigation ends. In response, the White House maintains Kushner can, quote, do his job without that clearance. Trump has directed the Department of Defense to schedule a massive military parade on Veterans Day. The parade would start at the White House and end at the Capitol at a cost of some $30 million. Day 402, February 25th. The House Intelligence Committee released a redacted Democratic memorandum countering Republican claims that a top FBI and Justice Department official had abused their powers on spying on a former Trump campaign aide. Trump countered on Twitter, quote, the Democratic memo response on government surveillance abuses is total political and legal bust, just confirms all of the terrible things that were done, so illegal. 
and a proposed meeting between Trump and Enrique Peña Nieto has collapsed over Trump's insistence that Mexico pay for a border wall. Peña Nieto was planning an official trip to Washington this month or in March, but both countries agreed to call off the plan after Trump would not agree to publicly affirm Mexico's position that would not fund construction of a border wall. One Mexican official said Trump, quote, lost his temper. White House officials told the Washington Post that Trump was frustrated and exasperated, saying that Trump thinks it is unreasonable for Peña Nieto to expect him to back off his campaign promise. Axios is reporting that Trump has privately told friends at Mar-a-Lago that he would like to execute all convicted drug dealers. He is admiring of programs in Singapore and the Philippines that do just that. Day 403, February 26th. The Supreme Court today shot down an attempt by Trump to get an expedited review on ending the DREAM Act program. Federal district judges in California and New York have issued nationwide injunctions against ending that program, effectively blocking Trump from ending it on March 5th. The Supreme Court, in an unsigned and unanimous decision, said it would wait for appellate court review. The move means the DACA program is likely to continue for the near future. And Trump claimed on Monday he would have ran into the Florida high school to stop the gunman, even if I didn't have a weapon. Quote, you don't know until you test it, but I think I really believe I'd run in there, even if I didn't have a weapon, and I think most of the people in this room would have done that too. Trump said this before a gathering of U.S. state governors at the White House. Trump added that the NRA has to be challenged, though he had yet to lay out specific gun control proposals. The NRA, of course, spent $30 million on Trump's re-election campaign. And Trump's re-election campaign used a photo of one of the survivors from the school shootings to solicit donations. 17-year-old Madeline Wilford was shown in a hospital bed surrounded by the president and first lady. It is unclear if Wilford approved the use of her image. And Stephen Miller, a White House advisor, was caught on camera sleeping during a briefing with governors about the shooting. And Ivanka Trump told an interviewer it's, quote, inappropriate to ask her about her father's sexual misconduct. Ivanka said, quote, I have a right as a daughter to believe my father. And Trump has nominated his personal pilot to head the Federal Aviation Administration. John Duncan flew Trump during his 2016 presidential campaign. Day 404, February 27th. Hope Hicks declined to answer some questions during a closed-door interview with the House Intelligence Committee in its investigation of Russian campaign interference. Under instructions from the White House, Hicks declined to answer questions related to the transition period between the election and Trump's inauguration, as well as time, quote, in the West Wing. Hicks also admitted she told white lies for Trump. Jared Kushner has been stripped of his high-level security clearance after months of delays. In another development, four countries reportedly discussed ways of taking advantage of Kushner's naivete and his nebulous business ties. Those nations were China, Israel, Mexico, and the UAE. Officials in the White House were concerned that Kushner was naive and being tricked in conversations with foreign officials, some of whom said they wanted to deal directly with Kushner only. The White House has cut ties with a former aide to Melania Trump who was paid some $26 million for personal services during the inauguration. The First Lady's office said in a statement it ended its contract with Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, who had been working as a special government employee. Wolkoff said in a statement to the New York Times much of that $26 million went to subcontractors and that her firm had earned $1.6 million split between 15 partners. Trump was reportedly enraged by news of the spending. A whistleblower suit says the Department of Housing and Urban Development officials spent $31,000 on a new dining room set for Secretary Ben Carson's office just as the White House circulated plans to slash HUD's programs for the homeless, elderly, and poor. The suit alleges a HUD staffer was fired after Carson's wife, Candy, pressured department officials to find money for an expensive redecoration, even if it meant breaking the law. Told he only had a $5,000 budget to work with, Ben Carson is said to have applied, quote, you can't even get a decent chair for that.
The USA's top diplomat to North Korea has suddenly resigned. Joseph Yoon, who is in his early 60s, decided to leave for personal reasons. Day 405, February 28th. Robert Mueller is now looking into Trump's pre-election trips to Russia, including a 2013 trip to the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. Mueller is investigating the possibility that Russian agents have compromising material on Trump. The new threat, corroborated in the infamous Steele dossier, is a departure from Mueller, who has now expanded his inquiry to take in the Trump family and Kushner family's nebulous financial ties. And Georgia Republicans are threatening the airline Delta after that airline cut ties with the National Rifle Association. The state's Republicans, including a major candidate for governor, are threatening to kill part of a bill that would eliminate a state tax on jet fuel. Chuck Hofstetler, chairman of the state's Senate Finance Committee, said, quote, we felt it was wrong for them to single out one company. The NRA, of course, is not a company, but a lobbyist. In related news, Dick's Sporting Goods announced it would immediately stop selling assault-style rifles and sell no guns to anyone under 21. It is one of the strongest moves made by a corporation in the wake of the Florida massacre. Russian operatives compromised election systems in seven states prior to 2016. Those states were Alaska, Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, Wisconsin, and Illinois. Several of the states were notified that foreign entities were probing their systems. None were told the Russian government was behind it. The NSA director said he had not received orders from Trump to stop Russian hacking targeting U.S. elections. Admiral Mike Rogers said, quote, I haven't been granted any additional authorities. I need a policy decision that indicates there is specific direction to disrupt Russian election hacking. Panamanian authorities have announced they are investigating a dispute between the Trump Organization hotel business and the owners of a Panama City hotel that carries the Trump name. The country's public ministry said in a statement it was looking into whether there had been any punishable conduct. A formal complaint of illegal encroachment on the property was filed. The association in Panama has been trying to dump Trump's company, blaming the brand for declining revenues. President Obama, speaking in private this week, took a veiled shot at Trump, saying, quote, we didn't have a scandal that embarrassed us. I know that seems like a low bar. The remarks obtained by the magazine Reason came during a conference on sports policy. And Trump's approval rating has tumbled again in the wake of the Florida shooting, matching his lowest level ever at 33%. Almost 60% of Americans say that Trump has tried to interfere with the Russia probe. 73% of Americans say they are very worried about international interference in our elections. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting left spoke with Dr. Susan Kearns and Floyd Webb about genre filmmaking, Afrofuturism, and how black exploitation films might have just saved Hollywood. Hitting left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Floyd Webb is, is you're a, you're an alumni of Hitting Left, uh, as you know, Floyd. You, you've been here before. It was one of the high points of your profession. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, right. uh, that's where that's where Floyd's. Aside from uh, Floyd's past work, uh, which include being an associate producer of the award-winning Julie Dash film Daughters of the Dust. Uh, that was lo- a great movie, by the way. Uh, local producer of American <laughs> Masters film. Uh, the world of Nat King Cole, uh, I could go on and on, uh, but I would take up too much time on the show. Uh, Floyd uh, has done uh, uh, organizing of film festivals, uh, mm-hmm. right? And right, we have a, a, a weekly series that's coming back in March called Black World Cinema at, um, at uh, Studio Movie Grill Chatham up on 87th Street. So we do the Black World Cinema series. We're bringing a film from South Africa, uh, uh, Kalushi, which is a film about a, uh, a young fighter, uh, a young man who, who becomes a liberation fighter and is executed for his role. Um, 
which they've had a whole lot of time distributing here, by the way. Just want you to know because it's you know because it's well, we'll be looking for that, Floyd. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. so yeah, so that there's you know we we do a lot of film. You know, Southside has a lot of film culture. There's a Southside film culture that people don't recognize. So we're actually trying to start a paper called Southside Cine. So we're trying to do that by June. Very to, cool. To do that. Yeah. And and Floyd, I must say your mm. your Facebook page has become a, a focal point for discussion around the Black Panther film. <laughs> and it's getting kind of it's getting kind of steamed up over yeah. there. Oh yeah, yeah it's yeah. intentional though. It's intentional. That's yeah. orchestrated. Yeah. That, well, that's that's orchestrated in order to create a certain kind of dialogue around not only as a movie, not only as as entertainment, but as a metaphor also, right? And and also as a call to action of sorts, you know, because art you know, you want to talk about a call to action. You know, when I was a kid and I read the Black Panther and it came up in this magazine, it came up in the, in, in the uh, Fantastic Four, the first thing I said is, that's who we needed to protect Patrice Lumumba. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, seriously, seriously, yeah, no, because, because this is because we were being, you know, because back then we were like, you know, like we were, we had to read the newspapers at school every day, you know what I mean. We had to make reports and and discuss news and stuff. And but I was, it, but it wasn't up. on the it wasn't on the test. Why did they do that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't on the test. But wasn't the CIA <laughs> uh, responsible for the killing of Patrice Lumumba? And aren't they yeah. allies in the move of the Black Panther in the okay. movie? Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, mm. we're getting ahead. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, uh, we're getting okay. way ahead of ourselves. Okay. So, but anyway, but but yeah. So it's like you know this this character for us for my generation who who. Uh, at the time that the uh, that the Panthers started, you know, he fought the Nazis, right? Because they tried to steal the vibranium. Captain America came to help them defeat the Nazis. <laughs> then Captain America wanted to hang around, and Black Panther had to kick his tail. And was like, "Hey, you know, we we know what y'all do. You can't stay here, right?" So there's this whole thing where Captain America begins as an anti-imperialist, anti-racist, and anti-fascist, right? And that's, you know, that's as I told my grandson, that's, he's not your grandfather's Black Panther. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so, but at the same time, I'm happy that my grandson gets to have a yeah. black superhero as a normal thing. He had a black president as a, he grew up under a black president as a normal thing, right? So that's another thing out of the way. You know, we, we get a lot of the romanticism on the way. Now we can go back. To All right, we're going to get, we're going to get back to the Black yeah. Panther. We're going to yeah. be talking about uh, other films. Mm. We're going to be talking about uh, the Oscars. I hope we have enough time for all this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, anyway, I just want to uh, uh, introduce uh, Dr. Susan Kearns. Uh, Susan Kearns is, uh, has produced the documentary Man Life, which won the Audience Award at the Chicago Underground Film Festival. Yeah. She uh, wrote the screenplay for Little Red uh, in 2012, which won Best Feature Awards at the Berlin uh, Independent uh, Canada Film Festival, Great Lakes, and Drift, Driftless Film Festival. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you win some easier awards right, to, right, right. to talk about? It. Yeah. And she's also produced and directed numerous award-winning short films. Uh, she's the founder and co-founder of the Chicago Feminist Film Festival. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, uh, okay. Susan, before we get get into the Black Panther. What is the Chicago Feminist Film Festival and... Uh, what, what, what do we need to know about sure. that? Sure. So the Chicago Feminist Film Festival is actually coming up in just a couple of weeks. So uh, we also have a Facebook page if anybody wants to check out information there. But basically, we um, 
we built it to help get some audiences out and visibility for films made by people who are underrepresented in mainstream media um, and to showcase stories that are underrepresented in mainstream media. So it's a mix of, you know, fiction and documentary. Um, <clears throat> But basically just trying to showcase like people who don't always have access to resources for making films and showcasing their films to an audience, that kind of thing. Um, concerned with feminist issues, social issues, you know, the, the gamut. I want to I read a quote from you that I, sure. read, I read in, uh, I guess it was in the Columbia Chronicle. Chronicle. Uh, Susan said, you get a sense uh, when you don't see people like you in an industry uh, that the industry is not for you. So the, the more that we can see black women getting recognized for their work, as soon as we start to see wider recognition in all of these uh, behind-the-scenes roles, uh, these roles in the industry can be opened up to all kinds of people. So uh, 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 tell, elaborate on that a little okay. bit. So, uh, so essentially the, the reporter was asking me, like, why is it important that we recognize women in film? And so I was saying that we need to start recognizing all kinds of people in all kinds of film roles, because as soon as you see somebody like Rachel Morrison being nominated for the Oscar for Best Cinematography, then that allows other women to see like, hey, there's somebody who's doing this and, in, and is doing it at a really high level. She also is the cinematographer for Black Panther. Um, and so then it opens up, you know, there are other, other women out there saying like, hey, I can do this too. Um, and we hadn't had that before. There hasn't been a recognition for uh, women behind the cameras. No, and yeah. for as abysmal as you know the the percentages are, and for especially women, black women and uh, sure. Latino women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I think only I think you pointed out, uh, or somebody did in that article, that there's only been one uh, one women one female director to win the Golden Globes the award for directing. And Barbara Streisand. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that was, what, two well, decades ago? Right, and yeah. she was a Hollywood well, insider at the time, too, so it wasn't like a stretch for them to recognize <laughs> her, you know. Yeah. Floyd, I like I love, we like Barbara Streisand. Floyd, oh, this, sounds, sure. like, yeah, this sounds like a theme you've been, uh, that it's dear to your heart, too, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, re representation, I mean, like, that, that's one of the questions we ask behind the probably billion dollar success of Black Panther is, like, how does it change, how does it, how does it, how does it change Hollywood in terms of labor, you know? How many more people of color will we see enter the industry? You know, uh, one of the things Spike Lee did um, when he when when he had that hit film is he started a he started classes at his office for at the Forty Acres and a Mule's office. Every Saturday they had a class for PAs and they had a class for pr producers. Right, a lot of people, more people entered the film industry through Forty Acres and a Mule than at any time in the history of cinema in this uh, in this country. And 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 he doesn't really get a lot of credit what about the so-called what about yeah. the so-called black exploitation films in the seventies? The, the, the black action genre. Well, yeah. some of those well, well some of those films were actually atypical. You know, some films got through there. Like there was a film called Top of the Heap. That was uh, that was done. That won an award in in Berlin, but couldn't get distributed here because it was atypical. Ganjin Hess, which was a horror film, that didn't get a whole lot. You know, there were there were films made during that period. Most of those films were just you know they were they were just passing through. See, like uh, when people talk about the success of the Panthers, I'm you know I'm old enough to have lived through four 
black booms in Hollywood <laughs> where everything was supposed to change. It was yeah. supposed to get better. And they just took the money and ran. You know, black exploitation saved Hollywood. Black exploitation films. And what do you su- what do you suspect? Uh, what do you anticipate happening with the Black Panther film? Um, well, if we okay, they say if it ain't popular, it ain't political. Okay, so this thing is so popular, it has to be political. So people need to use this story and this idea, this sense of Afrofuturism as a real thing, where where imagination impinges itself into reality. You know, instead of just using it as a, you know, oh, it's a good piece of entertainment. It's actually more, I mean, really, that's why I ended up with Frilimo and Swapo and Dar es Salaam in 1974. And those were the, those were the, liberation, liberation forces, forces yeah, because, fighting for uh, Yeah, but, for yeah, freedom. yeah, because we saw that stuff and we took it, you know, it took, you know, like science fiction to us, you know, to, to, to my generation of, of, of geeks wasn't something that just stayed on a page. It was something that we wanted to bring into reality. You know, like back then, uh, I mean, pe- people don't understand. Before the Black Panther, there were no black, no mainstream black superhero Super, figures, yeah. right? You couldn't even have one because of the comics code, right? The comics code prevented, just like the motion picture code, the Hayes code, pr- prevented any black characters of agency to be included in any, not in science fiction movies. You know, the first black the first black character you had in science fiction movie was in 1920. Now, about 1928, silent film by Jean Renoir. It's called Charleston. The next time you saw a black science fiction, a black character in science fiction, was in 1959 and 1960, and it was an Italian film, and it was an East German film. Which, which, by the way, the East German film, uh, uh, first spaceship on Venus, became uh, the, the model for Star Trek. <laughs> Bad at Sports spoke with Frank McGeary, the director of Cabinet of Curiosity. McGeary spoke about COC's events, their upcoming show at Navy Pier, and how a rare brain disease is affecting McGeary's work. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And we are lucky enough to have uh, Frank McGurry to join us in the studio. Welcome to Bad at Sports, Frank. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Frank has been a uh, – you've been a force uh, – in the creative performance arts in Chicago for decades. Uh, but currently right now you have uh, a, a relatively newer project, the the Cabinet of Curiosity events. Um, what's that? What are you doing these days? It's really exciting. So the Cabinet of Curiosity events is many different things. It's in part a response to what Red Moon became and was. Uh, it's in part my investigation of what new rituals and ceremonies can look like for the public. Uh, it's an investigation of, you know, what design-based events can feel like for people, what apparatus and device can mean to people in terms of interaction and experience. Um, And it's also a real study in what is intimate spectacle. Can there be such a thing? Um, Because I long for uh, devising work that is really personal but still lives in the mechanical and the celebratory and, and has some scale associated with it. So Cabinet of Curiosity Events is a place where I'm trying to develop celebrations and ceremonies and events and experiences that are unusual, uncanny, provocative, surprising, and have that are framed by some sort of spiritual experience for people. Not a religious experience, but a spiritual experience. Uh, An inquiry into who we are and what our responsibility to one another is and what is our duty to the earth and, and other people. And so far, the investigations have been really successful and interesting. Great. And so... 
can you let us into one of your most recent projects? How does that manifest? So the um, one of the projects was uh, Surprise Death is Not the End. Um, and Surprise Death is Not the End was a uh, – it was an invitation by uh, uh, Death himself to celebrate his birthday. Um, and we joined together to uh, go to bir- Death's birthday party where there were several puppet shows that were all – uh, in some way, shape, or, or another about hope and redemption. Um, so each show concluded with some sense of inspiration and aspiration, um, though the material was really based in mechanical equipment and visual experience and quality writing and music and song and celebratory experiences. Um, that event, in between the puppet show, Death would serve us cake. We would sing him <laughs> happy birthday. He would ponder his existence and his purpose with us and for us. Um, and then he had to come to terms with his role in the universe and his relationship to us. So it was in part a theatrical experience where we sat and watched puppet shows that were that are were very sophisticated and enthralling, um, but also had this interesting exchange with a character who is important to all of us universally in our own mortality, um, and and questioned uh, uh, our you know our fate and how we perform in the world day by day. That sounds fantastic. So it's kind of part party and part visual theatrical experience right, and part f- philosophical dinner. Right. And you certainly have uh, – in a lot of Red Moon and in a lot of your we have this sort of porous boundary between the audience as the spectator or participant in some form and as pure audience to to, to witness the, the puppet performance. And I think this is, this is the – largest element of the new investigation of how porous can it be and and how little can there be an audience and how much can there be um, people directly participating in the event and the questions of the events and the experience of the event. And Surprise was a great study in that. And I think it's taking us to a project that Seth Bulkley and I are hoping to do uh, about nine months from now called The Last Suppers um, or The Last Supper Club. Special announcement. No one knows. That's a part of the, uh, the Chicago the International Puppetry Festival um, that is part dining experience and part puppetry experience that are a series of shows that are about spirituality in general. So so food event as well, sort of. In theory, yeah. right now the idea is, and this will change, so please permit the art to evolve. Um, but right now there's the notion that there's a series of food service experiences um, that are fictional. So this is a particular plate of food created by this culture for this reason, and it's ritually eaten in this way. And that's related to the puppet show that you're about to see or you've just seen in some way. So there's a lot of myth and falseness surrounding the experience, but based in a kind of reality that I hope will provoke a new set of questions for the audience members to be discussing with one another and thinking about post-event. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay. Produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.